Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Represented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. So I learned for the first time the other day, I had never heard this story, that John Amici playing in, what was it, Kansas City? Kansas City? Oh, yes. An yes. exhibition game. John Amici, uh, Scotty Pippen uh, blocked his shot. And what did he say to you upon blocking your shot? Welcome to the league. Welcome to the league, Rook, is what he said. Yeah, that's uh, that's not confidence-inspiring. Can people, can you tell them your story on how difficult it was for you to get to the league, to get to Scottie Pippen, who was there to tell you, welcome to the league, <laughs> you super average person yeah. in our league? Yeah, I mean, I, I lament sometimes that this is part of the story that people don't know, and I know, obviously it's clearly in my self-interest, but... So I started playing the game when I was 17 years old. That was the first time I touched a basketball. I was wearing rugby shorts and plimsolls in a gym where the basket was on the wall. And so every time you went to do a layup, you'd twist your ankle on the wall when you came down. Because Britain didn't have basketball, uh -uh. and now you're, you're starting 10 years behind. Yes. If you're picking up a basketball for the first time... As a big, awkward kid who was handed a basketball because you were a big, awkward kid? It, it was actually a, a man on the street. I met a man on the street. Um, I'd gone to Manchester. I went to Manchester to go to the library, right? Because that's just me. Manchester has this big central library. It's an amazing building, huge old building. But it's just, as you'd imagine, so huge, voluminous. It's just filled with books. You can find everything. And I used to, every month, go there grab books so I'd have a pile of books under my arm and then go to um, this really bad kind of fast food place. It's called Martin's or now it's called Greg's. Um, and they make, I mean, just really terrible, wonderful food. And so I'd grab one of those and then have a pile of books under my arm. And, and walking down Market Street, I would tend to just look above people's heads because it means that people don't engage with you and you don't have to watch as they mouth oh you're tall or come up to you and say oh you're tall and so I was just ignoring people and then suddenly this man insisted upon himself in front of me forced me to kind of look at him and instead of saying you should play basketball which people still to this day say to me and I don't understand why they can't recognize that most elite athletes don't have gray beards <laughs> um, it's just amazing right people it's, still come up they to you do. Like, oh you, you should play, should bas play basketball have you seen them? <laughs> anyway, he didn't say you should play basketball. And, and he, he didn't ask me if I wanted to play basketball because I had a pile of books, including some really amazingly. It sounds like you were you were heavy. You were asking oh, to was, get beat up, basically. Yeah, yeah. When you're talking about Martins or Greggs and you're talking about fat. So you're reading a lot of books, eating a lot, and you're, and you're antisocial. Trying to stay away from people. But he looks at me and he says... 
you'd be great at basketball. Bearing in mind, I didn't know what basketball was. You'd be great at basketball. And it struck me as I stood there with books and pie in hand that that was the first time that anybody who wasn't my mother had told me I could be great at something. Never a teacher, n never a, a, a random person on the street. This man was the first. Oh my God, what uh, what a great gift for someone to give you. I, I know I had never been told I was good at anything until a high school teacher told me I was good at writing, and mm -hmm. that's enough to get you on the path. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. It was gravitationally compelling. It forced me to stop and think. It forced me to imagine what being great at this thing that I couldn't imagine would be. Sports is so great for confidence there, John. It's It can help you so much, just the idea. Wait a minute, because I'm get, when you say gravitational pull, part of what's happening there is you're like, wait a minute, I can be great at something? Look at me. I'm the guy. I know how awkward I look. I've got the books under my arm. I've got the pie. I'm headed toward a life of shame, and, and maybe I'll be smart, but thank you for giving me something that will allow me to believe in myself. I never found that person. I, I had no idea who it was. He directed me to a name, he directed me to uh, some courts where I could go and find, and so I ended up going and seeing this man called Dave McLean. He passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. Um, while he was alive, we used to go, I, I used to take him to visit all the places that I used to go with my mom, because he was a truly important figure. And I walked into the gym, and this is, this is why sports needs to be better than it is. Competition is important, and development is important, but I walked into that gym wearing rugby shorts and a plimsoll and a rugby top, which is not basketball attire. But my school didn't play basketball, so that's all I had for gym. And I walked in, <clears throat> and the whole place stopped. They were playing pickup, and the whole place stopped, and just one random ball bouncing, bounce, 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 bounce towards me. Very cinematic. It is. It, and I stood there, and, and they just stopped, and they looked, and in my experience of the world, this is a prelude to something bad, being chased by kids, something terrible happening. And instead, they ran towards me, terrifying, grabbed me by the arms and were like, he's on our team. <laughs> and, and my heart's just like, it just explodes. <laughs> like, what, how, what an amazing experience to have a bunch of strangers look at you and not go, you're weird, you're tall, you're something else. It was like all I could see as I looked in their faces was my potential reflected back. And it was amazing. The first shot I took, I tell this story all the time, but the first shot I took was, again, cinematic in that I took the shot only after being prompted because I was being passed the ball. And the first time I was passed the ball, I missed it completely. Thud and a clap. Hit me square in the chest and I clapped because I'd missed the ball. <laughs> <clears throat> it kind of dropped on the floor and nobody did anything. I just kind of grabbed it. <laughs> Next time I catch it and I think that that's a good thing. That's a part of this. So I'm just kind of looking at people like, yeah, <laughs> look at me. Caught the ball, right? And then eventually I catch it in a position where I'm supposed to shoot it. And so my team is saying, shoot it. And the, 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 the scrimmage, the team that's playing against me is like, shoot it. And I had to look at one of my teammates and say, what's shoot it? Put this in there, they did. So I threw it up. In my head, it was a hook shot. I just don't know how that's possible. And it sails towards the rim. And, and I'm feeling that moment of, oh, my God, this is going to be the confirmation of my potential. I missed by about six feet. <laughs> <laughs> but what was amazing is one of the kids on the team, as he picks up the ball off the floor and start restarts play, says to everybody, just says to the room, that was his first shot, and he only missed by six feet. 
What, what, I mean, we know about this now, right? This, this growth mindset, but what an amazing reframing of failure in that moment. No wonder I was just compelled. That was when I decided I'd play in the NBA. We sat on the floor at the end of that session. I didn't have anything to change into, but guys were changing and sitting around, taking their shoes off. I didn't know you weren't supposed to wear the same shoes outside that you wore on the basketball court. So they were changing their shoes and they were talking about this NBA. I was like, what's this? They said it's where the best players in the world play. And they started talking about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. They said Boston and Los Angeles. And even I knew enough to know that Los Angeles was hot. And so I was like, yep, that's, that'll be the place. And so I said to my teammates, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to play in the NBA. I've been playing for 45 minutes. Yeah, I'm going to play in the NBA. And they looked at me, this group of three or four at least, who were around me. And they're like, yeah, of course. We'll help. That was that was me started. That was that was my. And how much harder did it get after oh, that? Because oh I try to explain to people what that level of professionalism is, and I can't do it even as as a lifetime of working in it. Just how obsessive you have to be, competitive you have to be, and then now you're fighting. Yeah, you're you're fighting a culture, and now the world for dollars, and a desperate desperate world for dollars yeah i think it helped that i didn't know you made any money in basketball i just thought the sun would shine and that would be nice um and people would clap for me so nobody cares very few people cared about basketball still too few do in the united kingdom so it was always a trial i ended up walking because we couldn't afford the extra bus fare to many of the venues for practice so it's an hour and a half of walk from my house to stratford where my first practice venue was. Then the coach moved. I only had two years, well, year and a half there. Then the coach moved halfway through to this place that's in the Wirral, which is near Liverpool. So you can't walk there in a night. So what I would do was walk to a train, catch a train, then walk from the train station to a, a motorway service station, about a mile. I would wait at the service station. I had to be there in time so that when one of my teammates who was driving got there could pick me up, and I did the same exact thing on the way back. It was just what you did in order to get your hour and a half or two hours of practice in, literally uh, twice a week, by the way, because it wasn't every it wasn't everyday practice. And then I realized I wanted to get to America, and I realized I need to get in touch. And so my mother got me a book. Fulbright Commission published a book full of lists of high schools in America. And I went through and with a pen, just went pop, pop, pop the pen down on the page. Cause I knew I couldn't write to all of these. And don't forget this is pre-email era as well. You're randomly, you're, you're just randomly picking, going through states, randomly picking. And I sent 3000 letters to America. Hi, my name's John Amici. I am six foot nine and black. I thought that was important to tell them. Um, I think six foot nine English and black in that order. Uh, and I'd like to play. If you're for your going to throw in the English, you got to throw in the black, yeah. right? You can't. You you've got to make. The you've got to offset the English with the black. Because let's face it, people would then think Hugh Grant was applying for a scholarship, and that's not a. That's probably not compelling for basketball. But I, so I wrote these. Just machine wrote out in my, with handwriting these 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 letters and sent them off, and I. I just thought I would be inundated. I got three replies. One was from a very famous New Jersey high school uh, with the coach or 
their signatory said, we're the winningest, I mean, you knew you're onto a loser when they're using that word, winningest. We're the winningest high school in the history of New Jersey basketball. We don't need foreign imports. <laughs> but the thing that still amazes me is like, why did you reply? <laughs> There's a cruelty in that. Do you know There's that? There's a real cruelty. Do you know that I sent? It's just to tell you that they're the winningest. <laughs> Do you know that I sent um, stamped addressed envelopes in the envelopes that I sent? And only got three responses. That's because I sent them with British stamps on. Because I, I mean, how could I be 17, 18 and such an idiot? <laughs> oh my god anyway so i got a couple of replies one of them was from toledo i ended up going to toledo st john's high school um i had a choice of places but i ended up with this coach called ed heinchel who was so unbelievably terrifying and unbelievably kind it's just a weird combination of my god i'm terrified of you between the lines of this court and when you're making me run around the track by the way get to America, first time I realized you have to do sprints. You have to run and lift, lifting weights. Didn't realize you had to do any of that. Was your mom much of a disciplinarian? Like, are you getting now uh, a, a strange sort of aggressive discipline that you don't have any fluency in? Yeah. Well, basketball was never that serious in Britain, right? No, there's no money in it. There's no, you just kind of play it in crappy venues with nobody watching. There's, I think there was an organized league, but it wasn't very sophisticated. So mums might come, but it's not spectator sport. And you get to America and it's like high school basketball is the most serious thing you can consider. I remember my first game, there were like 2,000 people in this dome of an arena that the school. But you have no idea what you're signing up for, right? You go mm -mm. from the kid who gets hit in the chest with the ball to clapping. How much later are all these letters going out? You're still super raw. Yeah, yeah, it's a year, year. A year, you've gotten better, but you send out all these letters, and now a couple of high schools are going to take you, and you've made the decision, I need to move away from everything that's comfortable. From home, yep, got to go. Um, that was an easy conversation with my mother. It, she, I mean, some of the things she said then are, are informative to the work I do now, because that was the conversation she had with me when I told her I was going to play in the NBA. I tried to sweeten the pot about my departure by telling her that I'd play in the NBA, and when I'm rich and famous, I'd figured out by the end of that year that the NBA could make you rich and famous. But when I'm rich and famous, I'll buy you a house. That was my, that was my ploy. She was nonplussed by that. But that was when she said, would you recognize your soul in the dark? And I was really frustrated because no 17 year old wants to hear that. Just tell me that you, you think it's a great idea and you'll fund me to get there. <laughs> What that is how your mom that that informs more of who you've become than uh, than the other story. Her telling you at seventeen, would you recognize your soul in the dark? As you're like, I got it all figured out. I'm going to yep. be rich and famous. I'm going to buy you buy a house. You a house. <laughs> would you recognize your soul in the dark? I was frustrated, and she explained that if you want to do something unusual, untrodden, then you you'll sabotage yourself if you don't know yourself. And she and. We worked together, and the, one of the first things that I discovered is that I am endemically lazy. And not surprising. I'm the kid who likes to read books and eat pie. I'm still the adult who likes to read books and eat pie. And what's amazing about when you realize, when you do a bit of introspection and, and learn about yourself, you can then put in structures to stop you from screwing up. And that's what I did. That's why I was successful in basketball and to a greater or lesser extent. And it's why I am successful in the work that I do now. 
I would still rather not get up and not do diligence and not read every document thoroughly and not. And I simply structure my life in a way that helps me get that done and and win. Did that start in that high school with that tough man's discipline, fearing him? Boy, and- did it ever. I, and the thing is, I, I he was frightening, but I was not afraid of him. Some of my proudest moments, uh, he would take me, because during holidays, I couldn't go home, obviously. So he would take me, um, he and his family had a, a cabin in Michigan uh, on a lake in Michigan. I, I'd never heard of such a thing. I, I thought everybody in America was just the wealthiest people in the world. Your cars had automatic seatbelts. I was just like, this is like the future. And air conditioning. First time I ever experienced air conditioning. Unbelievable. But he would take me to this cabin with his family, and his son would sit in the front, just a, a young kid, eight, seven, Teddy would sit in the front, and I would sit in the back. With and one of my proudest moments when he came, we came back off one of those little jaunts around turtle hunting, grabbing turtles and trying not to get bitten by them. And he said, "This guy's like an engine on the back." I'll never forget how proud I was that I'm like the engine on the back of the boat. So I, I felt very much like this was a father figure, but. Oh boy, between the lines of the court, it's like, holy smokes. How hard was it? Keep going. Because I don't think people understand how hard it is to get to the league, a league, to get to the height of that profession. It was every day, all day. It was practice with the team. It was an individual practice with one of the assistant coaches. It was lifting weights. It was running. All of this was like a zero to a hundred miles an hour for me arriving in America. On top of that was the heat in the summertime and the cold in the wintertime extremes I'd never experienced. The fact that when I first arrived in America, I couldn't understand what anybody was saying. I literally spent the first two weeks of being in Toledo, Ohio, nodding at people who smiled at me while they talked. Because I don't know what you're saying because the the accent was impenetrable. I, kind people, there's a guy called Jamie Happ. Jamie Happ was the center of the team, becoming a senior. I didn't realize this until many years later, but we all know that if you're the, the, you're the upcoming senior who's going to be the center starter on a team and some random bloke shows up from England who's six foot nine and, or eight at the time and takes your spot, I didn't realize what a big blow that must have been to him. He was so gracious. He spent every moment he could trying to help me get decent. The first half of the year, I was abysmal. I do not understand how I wasn't just sent home. Two points a game, you know, unable to score against even the smallest competition. And then we went to this tournament, um, Kingdom of the Sun tournament in Florida. First time I'd ever been to Florida. We drove a bus there from Toledo. And you're you're chasing your dreams now, right? Kingdom yes. of the Sun tournament as the English guy. Just that sounds wonderful. I told everybody. We went to a Howard Johnson's and it had a pool. Amazing. Amazing. Right. <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe it. Uh-huh. Hotels have pools. This is amazing. It was great. And we played against Dunbar, DC Dunbar. And I don't know if they are now, but back then they were a powerhouse and we kicked their ass. And I played really well against a guy who was a prospect. And that tournament was where it all shifted, where my mentality shifted, where I realized also time is short. I have 
this much time to get a scholarship. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When did you recall basketball feeling the best, right? You're talking about these seminal moments in childhood that are confidence shifting, but you grew to, uh, you didn't love the work. You didn't love what the world of basketball was. I think playing was something and challenging yourself, that's something you always enjoyed, but there was a lot of other stuff around it that made it seem to me like you didn't enjoy so much. The John Amici I knew wasn't enjoying a lot of the things that came with basketball, but I didn't know you in Orlando. Yeah. So Orlando was amazing, especially the first year in Orlando. And not just because that's when I played the best that I played in my career. Um, it was every moment somebody would do something that just made you, all the characters were all flawed, right? So on this team of nobodies, Daryl Armstrong, I remember him being asked a question after the game. I played well, I had a sequence of games where I was just playing better and better and better, I played well again. And he was being asked, you know, is, is it gonna be a problem? You know, John's absorbing a lot of attention, he's getting a lot of shots up nowadays. Is that gonna be a problem? I just remember out of the corner of my eye, as I'm walking off the court, I heard the question, I'm looking for the answer. And he just looked incredulous at the guy who'd asked the question. I was like, what are you talking about? And then it, I, I, can't, I can't do a Daryl Armstrong impression, but it's like, we're gonna ride the horse. We're gonna ride the horse <laughs> until he can't ride no more. And then when somebody else will pick it up and we'll ride them. That's just like, uh -huh. a cool team. Very rarely do you, are you on an actual team. I say this all the time. Most people have never been on a team. In their workplace or in sports, they've never been on a team. Because teams are not the same of, as groups of elite individuals. And that was a team where people would inconvenience themselves for each other, where people had no problem with failing to meet their number as long as we won. Where they'd have no problem in sitting for an extra six minute in a cycle because someone else is hot. That was a team. Not a very good one, though. I don't, I don't. I don't know how you'd measure that. No, no. I well, by record is is no. how every. No, I understand what you're saying. It was an it was, excellent team. I understand what you're saying. We worked well together. You're a man who works in corporate culture. You know what good teams look like. I understand what yeah, you're saying. It's an excellent That's team. A good group of people that work together. But I think most people listening to this would not consider the 1996 Orlando 1999, Magic. 1999, 1999, 2000. Yeah, yeah. They, they were not the pinnacle. Uh, what I find interesting. Is how many Magic fans love that team still, and, and how are they doing now? They're terrible. Okay, good. They're they're pretty much always uh, terrible. Just checking. How is it that basketball ended up shaping you? What are the things that basketball taught you? Ah. Even as even as you look back at, at your sporting life with a with a degree of disdain. It's not disdain. It's it's appropriate distance. Sometimes I think people, I'll answer the question, but not yet. Sometimes I think people should boil down what they do into its very most core components and see if it's ugly or not. See if it's really purposeful and shiny and bright. I put a ball in a hole for a living for 20 years. 
That's what I did. Now, you can cite the engagement and the look of wonder in the children's eyes, and you can cite endorsements, which I didn't have, or you can cite whatever it is. But fundamentally, I put a ball in a hole for a living. There are people listening to this who, with their hands and eyes, they can fix a car. They can make something broken work again. There are people who do that with people. There are people who work with children in, as educators. When they boil down what they do, it's a gem. So I just, it's not that I have disdain, it's just an appropriate distance. Well, not just distance, though. You've had this, much to the lament of your coaches, including Jerry Sloan. Mm. You've got the appropriate perspective about what you were doing for a living, but I don't think that world wants your appropriate perspective. It may not, but it, it, it doesn't, yes. Because nobody wants a reminder. Nobody wants a a mirror that's held up under the chin and shows your, you know, your fat rolls. We we want something that, that just endorses the, the idea of the thing, not the thing itself. The idea of sport and not what sport actually is. And it's a job that pays very handsomely. That's like a, a weird kind of high-end puppy mill. What's the idea that they cling to? The people listening to this, fans of sports, the idea they're clinging to most zealously because you've always had an appropriate perspective on I put a ball in a hole for a living, but you saw the distortions all around you. And I don't know to what degree you were dismayed by the locker room you were in, but it was a world where that was the most important thing and not many people had your perspective on it. That is true. Um, sports fans, they think it's theirs. Um, the other day, there's a video online of, of fans outside the Real Madrid football stadium or, or the training ground, one of the two, waiting for the players to come out. And they're displeased with the players. I don't know what's happened, but they're displeased with them. So they are kicking the cars. If the windows are open, they're spitting and throwing stuff into the cars because people think that they own you. Old, old school style. And fans hate to hear that because I'm not like that. I don't think I own a human being. But you do because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do and say the things you do to and about those people. And it's a disproportionate fervor, a tribalism that bonds a group of people together and allows for an intimacy between men especially that doesn't exist in any kind of wonderfully functional way in many men's lives. So sport facilitates that, but in a way that becomes toxic. Sport is, is the elevation of something that should be entertainment into something that becomes a core pillar of your personality. And I don't know why that's anything but terrifying to people. Because you were talking about what lessons sports teaches. It doesn't teach any lessons. This is not my conjecture. If you look at the research base, there's a guy called Professor Fred Coulter. He's a wonderful man and um, a scientist who's done most of the research for the UK government on sport for development activities. You know, the you know doing football in a tough community because it's going to do X. And the evidence that sports teaches lessons is what he would describe as equivocal at best. That's what a scientist says when they mean it's bollocks. Almost anything you could learn through sport, you can learn another way. The thing that you think you could uniquely learn through football could be learned through Zumba or chess. It's just that 
your particular flypaper, the thing that you stuck to, was football, not Zumba. Anytime somebody says, well, I, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for sport, what they really mean is that person. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dave McLean, if it wasn't for a myriad of boys who I played with at that time, who I'm still connected with to this day, who reframed my failure. I wouldn't be here without the kindness of a grumpy old coach from Toledo, Ohio. I wouldn't be here without Bruce Parkhill, my coach at Penn State, who comforted me through the death of my mother, facilitated me coming back and seeing her right before she died, yanked me back to America to get back to playing so I didn't languish. It's the people. For those of you who are coaches in sports and listening, it's you. This is why I do the work I do. For those of you who are managers in workplaces, it's you. Every coach in sport, every manager in work know, should know. Your colleagues, children, will know your name. Your, if you're a coach, your, your, your team's family will know your name and they'll either know you as the person who uplifts, demands hugely, boys and, and challenges in, in furtherance of your development and thriving. Oh, the way you said Hap's name was with such delight, like the gleam in your eye, the joy, the love you have for the teammate who you now understand helped uh, build the bridge. He sacrificed his senior year. And those of us who played in high school now know what that means. I didn't because I just arrived as a senior and I didn't know it had any real significance. He sacrificed his senior year never once, not for even a moment was there a glimmer of jealousy. And at every moment when I was screwing up, he was there to say, what coach means is this. When I didn't know what a term meant, because you can imagine, there was a lot of language of basketball I didn't know. That's what, that's what they do. That's what sport can do at its best, have better people in it. I love how you used Zumba there, though. Zumba, you've got, you think Zumba can teach the same things. Damn right it can. Yep. That, that your toughness was not improved by the NBA, for example, in a way that Zumba would not be able. Your mental toughness. When we talk about mental health in sport, and it's a conversation that I'm hearing more and more these days, I think the furnace through which you came up is in and of itself, by its design, a mental health challenge. It that, is a mental health challenge. But the idea that you have to learn mental resilience, mental health, by being traumatized is that's not true you can learn it that way but as many people are burned up by it how many people have you observed and and talked about in stories where very clearly some component of the craziness that's going on in their life is a mental health issue how is it then we when we look at retired players so many of them are damaged stuck with gambling and 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 relationships that somehow fall to pieces and if it's so good, if all this furnace is so good for producing diamonds, why does the diamonds turn to shit the moment that the heat is off? Surely something that forges a person to something stronger leaves them so without having to be a continual aid. Sport can, through its good people, do amazing things. But the mistake people have is that they can be flawed and well-meaning but poorly skilled and somehow the cloak of football or basketball or Zumba will be enough to propel the people they touch to thrive in success. Not how it works. 
How has your relationship with being competitive changed? Because I know as I've reached adulthood, I used to be very competitive. And then one day I looked up and I'm like, this doesn't have very much merit on its own, being competitive. <laughs> I'm incredibly competitive. It's just, it's contextual, right? I really want to kick people's ass. It, but it's contextual now. It, it is, a, it is, a, is a, a little bit of that thing in sport where you wanted to where you wanted to win, but not by a point, because you knew that would give them hope and then it'd be more difficult to play again when you played them the next time. You want to kick them by 30, right? The reason I ask you the question is because of one of the things that I think gets honed and sharpened as a very sharp tool in that ecosystem is you almost can't survive if you're not competitive. Like, you have to have it. People fail when they leave sport i think because they have made the mistake of imagining that what they do is who they are i know i've said this before but when what you do is who you are when you stop doing what you do you stop being who you are and that creates a crisis in and of itself no amount of sharpening of tools or ambition or competitiveness will save you when you are sat in your chair in your pants with a beer and all you can do is reminisce about that time in 1999 when you scored over Akeem. That never happened, by the way. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's 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 one of those things. It's one of those things that you suddenly realize. I can help. I can drive my competitiveness. I want to win for my team. I want my team to improve and thrive, and I'm really ambitious about that. I want somebody to replace me, and not somebody. I want lots of people. We've got three brilliant trainers in our team right now and I want them to replace me I want to be sat on the bench giving sage advice soon I, I want us to be able to solve problems like nobody else can solve problems for our clients kick ass that's what I want to do but it's just more functional and it comes not at the expense not with a body count you know like we can we can have time off we can take breaks we can laugh together and still kick ass and maybe do it better because of that. What do you identify as the poisons that come with professional sports culture? Um, body dysmorphia, the um, the singular focus on one thing that doesn't allow for people to, and I'm not talking about becoming a renaissance man here. I, I'm just talking about it doesn't allow people to understand that there's a world outside their bubble, that they could have interests that weren't related. I remember when I became the trustee of the Orlando Art Museum and I was called into the office. So, so what's this all about? I said, well, I, I like art. So that's another one uh, that's a problem. It, it forces people to be so single-minded that when they leave this ecosystem where so much is done for you, you, you feel abandoned and lost, unable to make your own food, sort yourself out, unable to go through an airport now that you've all your experience of going through an airport, perhaps the only experience you have um, if you become a professional athlete from certain backgrounds is driving to the plane and having somebody take your keys and drive your car away. It's really it's really a dumbing of people that makes them more compliant and easy to control, but also leaves them desperately under-resourced under at the end of it. And what do you think is best that you carry from all your time beyond the people that your time in sports, your 20 years of dedicating yourself to something in retrospect that you might not do again, or you might choose a different path if given the option to do oh, it I again. often think that. I often think I would, the only alternative path I can consider for my life would be the not to play option. 
because it just would come with less responsibility, probably. Or maybe it's just me being pompous and thinking I have more responsibility than I do. But anyway. But do you look back with some longing at, or regret on maybe if I'd made this decision 20 years ago or maybe instead of dedicating myself to this obsessive thing that forced lopsided personality traits because you have to, to stay atop it for 20 years, uh, commit to it. If I had chosen to pour all of that will into something else, would I? I, would, I that, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have poured it into something else. I would have simply become a very, very good. No, would I have been? I would have been a good psychologist, probably still in Manchester, with a small practice and a hubby, at home, and that would be that would be me. And and then I think, look at the people. If just from a selfish point of view, just look at the people I would have missed. All the all these. The fabric of your Bruce. life. The fabric of your life. And Jamie, and, and, and here, and here, and here. Look at all the people that I would have missed. They're terrible. Yeah, that wouldn't be acceptable. The thing that enduringly basketball, if it did teach me anything, that wasn't the people, as your insistence is. Back off, man. Is, <laughs> is, is the, the thing it taught me is, is my first year and again, I tell the story all the time, but my first year in Cleveland, I lived at the hotel. I don't think people realize how often players, when they just don't know if they're going to get cut any second, they just live in the hotel. Um, so I lived in the hotel that's in the mall, right where the, the, the Gund Arena, as it was. I'm sure it's called something different now. Uh, but right there. And every day after practice, um, I would just wander into the mall <laughs> to get some food, high quality, and and then they had this this these fountains in the middle of the, the mall and I used to sit and watch them with my headphones on and I loved it. And we were terrible. I mean that's why I was in Cleveland, right? Because I was terrible, undrafted, they were terrible. I was starting for Cleveland as an undrafted free agent. Only player in the in the history of the NBA to do that, by the way, just for the record. Um but I was terrible. <laughs> and we were terrible. And people were lamenting all the players that weren't there anymore. And I got up from the, the watching the, the fountains and I start to walk away and this woman rushes towards me, this big black woman rushes towards me and she's dragging her son behind her, eight, nine, ten years old, wanted no part of this. He knew that we were terrible. And she rushes up to me and with a napkin from Panera Bread that had clearly been used because it had mayonnaise on it, she thrust it into my hand and said, will you sign this for my boy? And I unstuck this mayonnaise napkin from my hand. I signed it, and instead of giving it to her, I just kind of reached around her, shook his hand, and gave him this autograph. And then I walked off thinking, that's my first autograph. By the way, I just want to give a shout out to me for having a Sharpie in my pocket at the time. You're, I was- You were waiting for that I moment. was prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was prepared. <laughs> and um, I wandered away, and then I looked back, and she's trying to bustle back through the crowd, but she can't, because this, this boy is stuck to the ground, staring at the hand that I shook, staring at this mayonnaise autograph. <laughs> and I just, it stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible player on a terrible team. And look at that. Like he's been touched by God. I was like, now that's cool. I can do something with that. Change the way I think about every interaction. And you have, and you have done something with that. Did Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, or Tim Duncan ever say anything to you during play that is memorable, insulting, cutting, anything that you got uh, hit with by a legend uh, that is memorable beyond Scottie Pippen 
uh, telling you upon blocking was it wasn't your first shot. Was it your first shot? Was it your first shot in the league in Kansas City? Oh yes, it was in- my first shot. Was by Scotty Pippen. He just threw it out the court. I mean, just way out, not a little bit, like all the way, <laughs> all the way. Blow the whistle, find the ball, <laughs> bring it back. I know that that was my first experience of winning, uh, of of having a personal victory on a on a terrible day for a team. We lost by 30, I think. I don't remember the numbers, but it was by a lot. And I had 12 points. And I sat on the bus. <laughs> barely. I could barely contain myself. I'm the leading scorer on this team right now. <laughs> <laughs> against against Michael Jordan's Bulls, right? Uh, yeah, even though he got crushed, right? And he played, what, six minutes in an in a, in a exhibition game? I only saw him because I started. But Shaq had nothing to say. Shaq never had anything to say backing you down. It had to be the most overwhelming strength you've ever had. It was. There was an amazing uh, video that I got shown by the NBA the other day of him, uh, me scoring on one end of the floor, coming back down to defend him. Let's just say defend him uh, with in, air quotes. In air quotes, yes. And, um, and he turns towards me with his elbow high and knocks the living daylights out of me. Did get called for a charge. I was amazed. And then, but while he was getting called for, called for the charge, dunked it on me so hard. I was on the floor. I didn't know what was happening. Could barely see for about three minutes after that. So that's the only thing. Tim Duncan, the only thing he had ever said to me, because again, you always do the, the check on this, but I, I actually defended him reasonably well, which is rare because I defended no one well. And he was confused by this. And the only thing he ever did was after missing one of those turn around bank shots. I don't know why I have a problem with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great admission because people talk about Tim Duncan just being an assassin with just fundamental trash talk, which is almost... So close. Yeah. Like just telling you, but no, with him, he just said, I don't understand why I, I have such a problem. I think he was just you. clearly bemused by, it's like, <laughs> you. All of these players here, and I have a problem with you. Uh, John, always good catching up with you, sir. <laughs> good to see you. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.